Two weekends ago, I backpacked up to some lakes with a friend of mine, and then we hiked out um, along a ridgeline where we could see a huge sweep of open country in north central Washington where we live. And we saw two threads of smoke um, become a giant, towering pyrocumulus cloud in the space of a couple of hours. Hi, everyone. This is Hot and Dry, and it's our last episode in our fire series. We're going to do something a little bit different this episode in light of the recent events on the West Coast. We're going to start the episode with some first-person stories from the fires that have really devastated California, Oregon, and Washington in August and September. We have an extended interview with one man named Joe Cannon, who had to evacuate with his wife and baby in the middle of the night to escape the Cold Springs fire in eastern Washington. And after that, we'll talk with John Abatoglu, a climate scientist in California who studies fire-climate connections and has been living through these dark days like everyone else. And I mean, like, literally dark days where the air quality is so bad that it's like the sun didn't even come up. Um, Okay, everyone out there, we are thinking of you and hope you're staying safe and finding a way to keep your home free of smoke, or at least relatively so. And uh, here we go. Um, And after we got back into town, uh, we learned that those two threads of smoke had become a 300,000 acre burn in a period of about 24 hours, which was pretty overwhelming. Um, And we got smoke in the valley then afterwards, and everyone is all hoarse and has smokers coughs. So this recent weekend that just ended, another friend of mine and I backpacked up high to get away from the smoke, which has since begun blowing in from the southwest from huge fires in Oregon and California. And we were above the smoke and it was beautiful. We could see 15, 20 miles maybe for the first time in in the week. And uh, we felt like we'd made the right decision. And then um, the Oregon, California smoke blew in to where we were as well. And we slept all night out in uh, an air quality index of over 300, which is listed as hazardous. And then we hiked out 10 miles, so that probably wasn't the smartest. And yet I wouldn't have changed a thing about that weekend. Um, Just getting that clear view after all of the disaster of the past week um, made it worthwhile. And that's why my voice sounds so sexy now. Hi. I'm Tara Quinn and I live in Hayfork, California. I've been living in Trinity County for about 43 years now, so um, my time there's been fairly extensive. Um, I'm, we're talking about wildland fire and the, frankly, the experiences I've had have left me at this point feeling like, well, it's just a matter of time, a roll of the dice till, you know, my place burns down. It's just. They've gotten to be so numerous and so intense in the last, you know, 15, 10, 15 years that it's pretty scary. This year, um, I happen to live on the, kind of in the peripheral edge of the biggest fire that California has ever experienced. And it is, I believe, near 900,000 acres at this point. And the smoke has been horrendous. It's been, the days have been hot. And the smoke is just, you know, it's, you hear the phrase, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's not quite that bad, but it's pretty bad. You can't see across the street or across the valley, whatever the situation may be. And it's very oppressive. It's not just bad for your health. It's, it makes you feel oppressed and, you know, kind of discouraged. Fortunately, you know, I haven't had any flames at my, you know, yard, but seems like it's only a matter of time. I know people are working hard and trying to get things under control, but frankly, the loss of the wildlife and the timber and all the beauty that, you know, is the reason a lot of people move to the area I live in, it's really, um, it takes its toll. It's, it's hard. Along with the smoke, there's um, the ash factor, and we've had a lot of ash this year too. So much is burning that, um, you know, it just is, it falls like snow. They haven't been hot, at least not at my house, but you know, it's, it's just, that's also very scary. 
Um, a few years ago, I had a fire right behind my house that was started by a guy cutting wood on a hot August day. Maybe it was in September, I don't really remember the date, but um, it just, you know, I, I went out to feed my dogs and I turned around with their dishes and here was this huge plume of smoke. And it's just like, you know, you just go into fight mode. And we were told to evacuate, but I did not want to evacuate because I was the only one available to water my house down. And everything was fine. You know, we, we didn't lose anything. But still, it's just, it, it. I don't know, I'm getting older, but it's very wearing and very, very hard on people. With this latest fire, um, I happened to flee Hayfork and come over to the coast to stay with my daughter. And we woke up one morning and the sky here was just like a blood reddish orange. It was so miscolored, you know, there was no blue sky visible at all. And to see the way that affected the dogs and then the young children, they were, you know, they, everybody was like standing at the window looking out and, you know, you just don't know what's gonna come next. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, if you haven't been in it, it, it would be hard to understand, but it was very apocalyptic and, and it just all kind of adds up and it gets to be old quick. So Joe, do you wanna, could you maybe start out just by introducing us to yourself? Sure, uh, I'm Joe Cannon. I live just, about uh, 15 miles southeast of Okanagan, Washington, which is kind of the last frontier in America. <laughs> I think they call it sometimes. And it's on the Colville Indian Reservation, right on the, the as you get into the uplands from, from Okanagan heading east, kind of the, foot, the dry foothills of the East Cascades. Um, I just moved here last July um, to be with my wife because we got married and she lives here. I am done a lot of uh, things in the realm of um, being a field biologist and now I'm here and I work for myself. I just do consulting stuff and kind of part-time to do some paternity leave because we just had a baby in March 1st and I'm just doing firewise contracts yeah about this land <laughs> and we love it it's like my whole life is this land and the baby now so yeah. um cool so tell us a little bit yeah tell us a little bit about the land it's uh I really grown to love the kind of high desert sagebrush steppe ponderosa pine area i I was just so not into arid landscapes until my my wife I met my wife and she moved up here and was renting property and then I came out here and it's just so incredibly vibrant with life and drama like every day there's just a drama from nature massive winds and you know when the rains come and things just bloom and bud like crazy while they can um but yeah when i got here what i know about fire ecology was it was ready to burn in this ecosystem in this area and i couldn't believe the last burn that came through here was uh, in 2001 and it, you could tell where it burned pretty good. And most of the aspen stands on the property are about above ground, you know, around 20 years old. Um, so that has been on my mind ever since I was here. And we got, we rent one property and we own the adjacent property. And it's about 100, 120, 100 acres. And I was like, well, let's get some contracts to do the firework. And, um, first within the house so we set up all these um fire screens and buffers and and whatever um yeah i mean we're really realizing that we have a really tight relationship with the land here 
and it's dramatic you know I, what i know is it's it's coming back you know it's going to be beautiful and green and things are just going to explode again but this was a really intense fire and um winds gusts were 60 miles per hour and they're myth there's <laughs> legends of 100 mile per hour the people that were stayed up here and fought it but they didn't even get a crew on it before it burned through here so it was yeah it burned about as hot as i can imagine so when um what what's the name of the fire and when did it start officially it's the cold springs fire I guess I'll kind of get into our experience with it. We, um, Cold Springs fire lit and there's suspicion. I'm not supposed to tell rumors. It's somebody lit it down near Omac Lake, which you can find on a, on a map. And we're uphill in the, to the south of Omac Lake and the um, winds blew 60 miles per hour. So we were right at the beginning at Cold Springs. First, and it blew by us. We evacuated in the middle of the night, you know, and um, we got the call, and I could see the glow between us on the direction of the turnoff we'd have to make from our our rural roads. So it was an act of terror, trying to figure out exactly how much time we had. Grab the baby, grab the cat, and um, so it it we evacuated and we're in, into town, and um had like a safe house where we could watch up the hill and like the next morning which was a few hours later as soon as the sun came up I was just sitting up you know I thought we burned down for sure and you couldn't see the fire at the top of the mountain at all just because the winds were blowing it away but then I saw this other little fire start right where they had put out a fire about a month ago near near Omac and then it flared up, you know, no, not a hot spot from the Cold Springs fire or anything else. It just got bigger and bigger, and I was just waiting for them to get on it. But I don't, I don't know. They're, I'm sure they were to the extent that they weren't trying to catch up with the Cold Springs fire. I'm not a firefighter, so I don't, I don't know. But it burned up the mountain, and I was like, that's what's going to burn us down. And sure enough. So I, don't, it's, I think they're officially calling it the Cold Springs fire. But this was one that didn't get mopped up, I think, from a month ago. So did you guys, like, did you go to bed that night and there was no fire and then you got woken up in the middle of the night saying you have to leave? That's correct, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I, I mean, I saw the glow and I was like, we'd be great if we could do some stuff, but I just have no idea. Yeah, one call, it was level two so you had um they said you might not get another notice so we texted around and looked at our community facebook and of course i think everybody else was scrambling and then 911 couldn't tell us which way to get out because there's multiple turns i drove to a high point and then i could see the fire line because again we had to drive towards the glow um and i couldn't tell if it was between us and the turnoff or not you know, and I was just like, oh, God, what do I do? Because um, with that kind of fire, it would have been easier to go to a, the house or something, I guess. Um, so I just raged up as fast as I could towards it to see if I got closer or if it was just around the bend, you know, moving at me at 60 miles per hour. Um, but it was for, it turned out to be further off. I mean, just a lot bigger than it looked you know, but way kind of near the horizon. So it was a good, you know, 20 miles further than I thought. <clears throat> so we made that, we thought we didn't know which way to go at that turn because we didn't know if it burned below us and we needed to head down the mountain. So it was, um, we saw, we finally saw a car go by us going down and so we're like, okay, I think we can go down. And we, we made it, made it down. But, yeah, it's not like I always imagined to where, you're about to get burned down somebody drops out of a helicopter you know and swoops everybody up that's on rural property it's like if you stayed up here you were probably in big trouble so that was all we got <laughs> i was probably naive about that i don't know so what happened to your house 
So yeah, the, uh, just removing the general fuel. Well, I could speculate on what. <laughs> I mean, did the fire just moved through here so hot that it had. It was like taking fuel, you know, from hundred feet away and burning things down. So even where I had cleared, you know, raked around trees and brushed and everything, um, you know, tree would be burned down under it and everything and um, structures the same way. So we only lost outbuildings, fortunately, despite the work, but that seems to be the story here. And it, it was one of those where it made its own kind of weather system. So then gusts were just blowing opposite directions from the the direction of the fire and burning stuff down. Um, so we kept our house, the house that we live in and rent, fortunately, and our barn, like the ones, the structures that were really valuable, we were able to to preserve and then our outbuildings like the ones I didn't put any kind of cleanup brush removal and mowing and whatever just burned to the stone age that's good so you feel like so does that mean it feels like the firewise sort of work that you had done on your property worked oh yeah oh yeah for sure is this a scenario that you and your wife had like talked about and planned for yeah, I mean, because cause I'm, like, doing the work, it's kind of, it's in my head every day, you know, um, that it's not a matter of if, but when. It was almost the worst possible scenario, though, you know, it was like, nobody was on the fire, it was just too quick, and we were near the beginning, and it was the middle of the night, um, you know, it's a miracle. A lot of, I mean, a lot of people lost structures, um, and people are pretty good about their buffers up here. Um, but you know, not many people died, and it's that's the amazing thing. What about does does it feel like this experience? I mean, has it like changed your relationship with the landscape at all, or like? Or, I mean, it sounds like you guys really love living there. Like, have you guys thought about leaving or did that ever cross your mind? Or was it just kind of like, I mean, obviously you were aware it could burn. So it wasn't necessarily a surprise that it did. But yeah, just kind of what is the, what is the immediate aftermath like? Yeah, I mean, definitely those, those thoughts. Um, I mean, mostly because like we have a baby now and, you know, she's going to, she was born in this house and I had plans of, you know, it's like, if fire's like this, is there a safe way to get through it? You know? And it's, it's like every fire that I can imagine. I'm just like, worst case scenario, this worst case scenario. And then it's like, you know, we had to, yeah, winds were different. Things would be different. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. We're definitely going to strategize um, protocol, safety protocol, even if it means not living up here in the summer. You know, I mean, it really, I was talking to my friend on the phone probably a week before and I was like, man, it just feels like if I just, you know, I kicked my shoelace rivets together, this whole mountain, something in my, intuition that just tells me this is I should not do anything today because <laughs> just like the fire danger you know humidity down to 15 percent and massive winds and it's 100 degrees it's like yeah but yeah I will we'll strategize but I don't think we're going anywhere I think we're this is going to be our home So 
Colin, when we interviewed Joe, I was up at an off-grid cabin um, that a friend of ours has in the southern San Juan Mountains in Colorado. Um, And this is a place that has been like pretty important to my husband and I, and we go there a lot, and it's just super peaceful and rejuvenating. It's beautiful. Um, And I spent a lot of time both on the hike up to the cabin and while I was there just thinking about what a potential death trap it could be um you know I'd been like for a couple weeks I'd been seeing these pictures from the west coast and these air quality readings that were just off the charts pictures where it was dark in the middle of the day where the sky was this like weird sort of high sea orange color and you know of course everyone on social media was like hashtag no filter like this is actually what it really looks like you know Joe considering what he had been through sounded like remarkably calm about it but I was just thinking about how you know I didn't even experience any of this stuff and it felt like it was having an impact on me and um just I, I don't know, I guess just wondering like what sort of psychological impact living through these events has on people. I think the thing that stuck out the most for me when we were talking to Joe was, was this idea of being kind of woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call or um, a neighbor and being told to evacuate, but not really being told where to go and sort of imagining him and, you know, his wife and new baby just drive, like driving away from their house and, and with no destination in mind, just away from the fire. And I think that like from some like carnal place, that was the thing that really like rocked me the most was like we all work really hard to take care of our families and our partners and there's often moments of uncertainty in our lives where we're trying to make hard decisions but rarely do we have an instance like that where the path forward is so completely unclear and that was like I think that that's maybe a little bit of an analogy or maybe a little bit of just a a moment of like, holy shit. From the outside looking in, it it, it felt really terrifying. Yeah, I think also that, um, you know, I mean, so much of this year just feels like we're living through this series of transformative events. And these fires, you know, feel in a lot of ways... Um, no different like they are they are also going to be this transformative event and something I was thinking about as I was you know hiking up to this cabin preparing to go interview Joe was just thinking about how you know I was wondering about how my view of going to this place that I think of as a refuge you know I was just thinking like is this even a place I'm gonna want to go in the summertime or like, do we need to, I mean, you know, I, I go backpacking a lot and I was thinking like, should I go backpacking (laughs) or like, should I have a new set of like things that I do before I go backpacking the same way, you know, skiers, like backcountry skiers check the avalanche conditions. Um, cause it just seemed, it, it struck me watching these fires that, you know, honestly, like, it's remarkable that people don't get caught in the backcountry more often by wildfires. Um, I had multiple friends on the West Coast who were in the wilderness um, when some of these fires broke out. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure necessarily how close they were always, but, like, they were in the backcountry when suddenly, like, the air just completely filled with smoke and they ended up leaving. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it just like it it really had me thinking about um how how my own thinking might change about, 
you know, just sort of how I perceive danger, um, danger on, in places that are normally places I've gone for peace. Well, it's interesting. I actually thought about that too this weekend. We were driving up and to this, just in this like back 40 kind of like forest road spot in northern New Mexico and um, heading up to like have a, you know, just a, a night out with some some friends and we like drove past this like giant gathering of folks in a COVID year, you know, that really stood out. But I also was thinking like, you know, holy crap, what would you do if you're trying to evacuate literally a hundred cars off of this like crappy forest road that like has one way in one way out kind of a thing. And just from like that super simple, like, aspect of, of the logistics of these kind of things like to the most complicated like the I don't even know I'm not being very articulate right now Callie I'm like because there's just like images floating around in my head like there's images of those like 200 some odd hikers getting like evacuated by helicopter off of the mountain you know before it burns and there's like images of the blood red sky that you talked about. And there's this one that I saw, it was in the, like in the Washington post, I think, but somewhere out in California where there was like an, a street just in a random town with like fire retardant, like painted on the street and everything was burned on both sides. And it's like just the juxtaposition of everything. It just doesn't, so much of this doesn't seem real. Watching these fires, on the one hand, I should not be surprised at all by them, I guess, in a certain sense. You know, like on an, on an intellectual level, I've known for a long time that like we should expect big and more severe fires, um, like that that's something that we're going to see. And at the same time, like actually seeing it happen right now in this just like extremely widespread and seemingly sort of apocalyptic fashion is just like really shocking <laughs> like I feel shocked by it and then I feel like sort of silly for being shocked by it and then I'm also like no like we should absolutely be shocked by this right I mean, yeah. it's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's fucking, um, I guess I wonder for you as a fire professional and someone who's just like, you know, when you go to work every day, you're like talking to fire people. Like, what are you guys talking about? And what are you like, what are you surprised by? Or what has really like Im been impressed upon you by what's happening? Yeah, it's weird. We almost, it's almost like we're talking about everything, everything, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just so, I don't think it's overwhelming. Well, it is overwhelming in a lot of ways, but it's also like this, there's this inevitability aspect to it. There's a helplessness aspect to it. You know, like I, I like to think that everybody that I work with and everyone that I surround myself with are, are really great problem solvers. And this problem, this immediate problem is very far away from like anything. It's very far outside of our own like sphere of control. And so I think for a lot of us, it's easier just to sort of not to ignore it, of course, but there's nothing to talk about. Okay, Colin. Well, I guess unlike you, I had questions about these fires. And so first, maybe just like, Apart from all the crazy doomsday images and air quality indices, um, here are some of the crazy facts about these fires. Five of the six largest wildfires in California have burned in 2020. 
There's one going right now that you may have heard of called the August Complex Fire, or maybe you haven't. I mean, there's so many huge ass fires this year that like I can't even keep my mind around all of their names or where they're occurring. It's it's like crazy like if some of if any one of these fires occurred in a single year, it would be a fire like, you know, the campfire in paradise that like we would all remember and we would know details about the story. And now there's just so many of them that are like so much more crazy than the fires that we do know that like we don't even know their names. So anyway, the August Complex fire in California is currently nearly 900,000 acres and only 43% contained. About a million acres have burned in Oregon as of mid-September, and this includes old growth forest with multi-hundred year fire intervals um, on the wet west side of Oregon. The Cold Springs fire that we heard um, Joe's firsthand experience of was 190,000 acres. You know, Colin, when we talked to Pepe the other week, he was giving us some shit for featuring, for talking about Less Conscious as the big one. And we justified it sort of as like, you know, the way we, the way that we were thinking about the big one is that it's not just about size and what the big fire is for any given place or community is really going to vary. Like it could be a really tiny fire that burns really severely in the wrong place. And that's the big one for a certain place. But um, I think like in light of what's happened of late, Pepe kind of has us on that because it's just like these fires are blowing all previous fires almost just out of the water. When you hear of a 900,000 acre fire, like does that sound crazy to you? Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, of course that sounds crazy. I mean, it's like, I mean, what did we hear the, like, weeks ago, it was, you know, 350,000 acres in Washington in a day. I, I mean, that is, that's, I mean, it's, it's really impossible to wrap your head around. You don't understand. I can't understand what 350,000 acres is in a day. I don't, I don't understand what 900,000, what a million acres is. I mean, again, to me, the crazy thing isn't isn't necessarily size. The crazy thing to me is that every single vegetation type in the West is ready to burn today. That's the thing that's scary about these fires for me, is that it doesn't matter if it's grassland, sagebrush, mixed conifer, West Slope, like borderline temperate rainforest. Everything is flammable in 2020 west of the Mississippi. That's the thing that's alarming to me. And all we are is like ignition limited in like this year. Or we would even, you know, or we could even have more, you know, fires burning. There's no reason that we didn't have a major fire in New Mexico this year other than we got lucky and we didn't really have the winds and we didn't have the ignition in the wrong place on the wrong day. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it also makes me think that we're kind of, um, that we're kind of learning one lesson of climate change in real time, which is that we're going to live through a series of events that are constantly resetting our expectations. You know, like thinking back to a conversation I've had with you and other fire folks here about less conscious multiple times is just how, how surprised you guys by were by a run of, I think it was like 40,000 acres in a 24 hour period. Like you guys saw those reports and thought they were wrong because that seemed so crazy. And now, you know, of course, with the caveat that like, we're talking about different places and different systems, like that wasn't that long ago. And now we're talking about being surprised by runs of hundreds of thousands of acres in a day. I mean, 20, you know, like in 1977, so not that long ago, right? Like we were talking about a 17,000 acre fire as being big. And now we're talking about, I mean, the fact that Pepe can even give us 
some shit about calling a 150,000 acre fire not that big. Like, in a career's worth of work, we've gone from, like, into this, I mean, we've been we've been operating in uncharted territory for like a decade and it just feels like there's no end to the edge of the map yeah so in light of just how batshit crazy all of this stuff seems um we called john a batsglue to ask him at the most basic level, just like, what the hell happened out there? Like, (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's it. Just what the hell happened? Like, what led to this? Yeah, so for the West Coast, at least, uh, it was, with most cases, with these sort of fire outbreaks, it's a series of of unfortunate events. And it really is a series, right? We had a, a number of things interact and come together. And that's usually what it takes for some of these massive fire outbreaks. But in this case, and in most cases, it's the combination of a prolonged period of unusually warm and dry conditions that allowed the fuels to become receptive over such a broad area, particularly in places like the western slopes of the Cascades that are, you know, pretty much burn irregularly. Uh, they're not quite the most asbestos forest as we see in the west, but fire there is fairly rare. Um, we haven't really seen we haven't really seen any sort of large fires um, in sort of the northwestern portion of Oregon in the last you know, 40, 50 years. So really, really unusually warm and dry conditions. Um, without, you know, that that doesn't include, you know, the extensive amount of warm and dry conditions that we saw across California and certainly across much of the Southwest with the failure of the monsoon. And then, of course, you get this incredible, um, you know, incredible windstorm across the region. And it first impacts Washington State, where we have northerly winds that come down from Canada, unusually warm and unusually dry and strong winds. And then um, as this trough that's sort of, you know, behind this wind event dives down and and results in unusually early snowfall in parts of Colorado, Um, sort of the tail edge of that results in very strong easterly flow um, that extends from basically the the, sort of the Washington Cascades all the way down into California. And so that, that, that's, these are sort of these capstone weather events where you have a, an incredible wind event at the very tail end of the dry season when fuels are incredibly receptive. And it's, it's really this sort of worst case scenario that we sort of have seen, you know, come to head in recent years, but mainly in California, right? In terms of Santa Ana wind events or the Diablo wind events. And now it was Oregon's turn. So I know out in California, at least, there's been some frustration among journalists I know who cover wildfire and also probably just like wildfire people about this kind of debate that's emerged in the public with these fires, with people arguing over whether it's climate change or forest management and fuels, like which is to blame. And um, it's frustrating also because like it isn't just one thing or the other, it's this combination of things. But I did also want to know from John, like, what do we know at this point, at least, about what role climate change plays in producing this kind of fire year? Yeah, so I think there's certainly different elements that led to this fire outbreak. I think the the, the strongest case to be made in terms of the climate change signal is that we've seen certainly our fuels um, drying out throughout much of the West. And that results in a longer fire season, more frequent conditions where the landscape is conducive to fire. Um, and this is being expressed through warming and sort of the, the, the effect that has in drawing moisture out of vegetation. And so that I think there is a link there to climate change um, and certainly if we look at the fuels in 
you know, early September in places like Oregon, I was just looking at this with some colleagues, uh, we had the highest um, energy release component, right, which is one of the sort of the primary measures we look at in terms of the receptiveness of fuels to fire um, painted across much of sort of Western Oregon there um, on the 8th and 9th of September. So the weather side, the weather story is a bit more complicated and I think we don't have much there to say in terms of whether that's a climate change signal or not. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, elements that lead to variability. There's a couple studies that have been done looking at sort of how climate change might influence things like the Santa Ana wind events. And in, in that case, there's some evidence to suggest that the Santa Ana winds may become a little bit weaker in the future as a result of the interior warming up a bit more um, and that ends up sort of slackening that pressure gradient. So the reality is, is that this, the magnitude of this event in terms of its, its strength and how early it was is it really appears to be unusual, unprecedented in some cases in terms of the contemporary record. And that leads us to very little we can say at least about the weather side in terms of climate change. So another thing I wanted to get like a real smart climate scientist take on. Certified real smart climate scientist. Yeah. So a lot of climate change discourse uses a term that you may love or hate, new normal. Um, and, you know, people are always talking about, oh, this bad thing that happened this year is the new normal. And um, there's a lot of talk about things we should expect to see more often. Um, and things we think of as being extreme now becoming sort of commonplace events. And I was thinking a lot about that watching these fires, like, so is this just going to be like a normal fire year in the future? Or are the fires of 2020, even in a future climate scenario, like extreme? Are these just like a particularly extreme event? Yeah, and we certainly broke a number of records this year in terms of fire activity. Um, and so like, you know, like in California where, you know, we set the record for the largest fire in the modern period with the Mendocino complex in 2018. And now we have the August complex, which is almost twice as big. Um, are we going to keep rewriting the record books when it comes to certain elements of fire activity? And I, I mean, I think that we will. Um, Nonetheless, I think we will look back and remember 2020 in terms of its sort of widespread impacts of fire. And certainly these fires have really sort of been sort of focused where people live too. You hate to say that we're gonna see it again, right? Um, but, you know, odds are is that we will see something like this again. Um, it may not happen, like you said, next year, even in the next decade, but the ingredients for all these things to come together along with the random chance of getting a, you know, the fluky lightning bus that came across the Bay Area or this, you know, downslope wind event. We can paint those as sort of one-off events, but the combination of more fuel in the landscape through fire suppression and removal of um, indigenous land management and then a warming and drying climate are increasing the opportunities for these unfortunate series of events to come together. You're getting it like an additional two or three sort of spins on the roulette wheel. The reason, really the reason, the reason that I hate that phrase, the new normal, is because it implies an inevitability. And I think that, like John was saying, we are, you know, we're taking more spins on the roulette wheel, but we do have some control over it. It's not, it's not completely outside of our, of our ability to take some action to mitigate the risk and to try to, you know, maybe we take some chips off the table. I don't know what the, what the analogy is or what the metaphor is, but we don't have to just sit back and accept. I mean, yes and no, because like, yes, we have the power to affect the situation, but also like the things that are happening now are a reflection of warming that's already baked into the system and we've already baked more in. So, you know, to some extent, like there, there is some level of new normals that we do have to accept and learn how to deal with. And I mean, Colin, you were the one asking about whether we need new scales for things. So <laughs> don't use my own words against me. Um, you're, you're, you're right. A lot of this stuff is baked in, but 
I just, it's hard for me to stand. It's hard for me. I can't stomach this idea that like the new normal is massive fires with devastating effects to communities. I think that that's the piece that we don't have to get used to. We can, we can learn how to adapt to the changing conditions and adapt to warmer and drier, you know, seasons and, and years and decades. We, we can do that in a way. I mean, it's just like, we can do that in a way that creates a more, you know, like equitable future and one that doesn't just continue to sort of like push these like wealth and economic disparities into like into hyperdrive. And we don't have to accept like that's the piece that I don't think we have to accept and is how we respond to the how we respond to the changing conditions. Okay, fair enough. I can see that. And so but then, you know, maybe in figuring those pieces out, we also have to understand like just the, the new physical realities that we are going to be living with. And one of those that this event has really driven home is just smoke and air quality. So you had some specific questions for John on that, right? Like had you, you had been watching the air quality indices and I think just having your mind blown. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to sort of watch those, you know, it's hard to watch the the scale go from like orange, yellow to orange to red to some purple color to some darker purple color to some blacky purple color. It's like, I just, I'm starting to feel like we're running out of colors to describe how terrible it is. You know, I think the scales would tell us that we can certainly, you know, maybe have a, we have dark purple, we can maybe have a, a scale of black, which is like, you know, don't go outside, please don't go outside. Um, but the reality is I think that anything above certain sort of air quality indices or particulate matter concentrations, there are impacts. Um, and there's not a great way around that um, other than maybe provide protective material for those who have to go out in the smoke. Um, yeah, and the part of the part of the smoke issue right now, at least over the past week, is we've had a pretty stagnant air mass. Um, we haven't had anything that'll that's actually been able to come through and really kick the smoke out and push it onto the the central and the eastern United States. Um, it is spreading, but it's doing it at a pretty slow pace, and so the sort of stagnant air mass is probably reducing the fire activity a little bit because it's actually up until this week, it's been it was dark. It was like dark all you know all day. It's pretty dark. Um, and that has an effect of reducing fire activity because you're not able to develop convection. You're not able to actually get enough heat on the ground or it's less hot, it's less, it's, it's, it's cooler than you might um, expect. Um, but the downside is the air quality and that air is just stagnating in these regions. So that's sort of another side of sort of the fire is that what followed in the wake of these fires after the big windy event is it was stagnant and that's, really sort of kept the smoke centered where a lot of the population in the West lives. Another thing that is kind of constantly breaking the scales that you and I are always kind of interested in is this thing called vapor pressure deficit. We learned that we learned that the way to describe vapor pressure deficit is to say that, that it's high. The deficit is high when it's really hot. Right. We did learn that. So that's, so that's a throwback to like one of the first episodes. Um, we, yeah, so vapor pressure deficit is basically the difference between um, how much moisture the atmosphere can hold versus how much moisture is in the atmosphere currently. And the higher the deficit, the more the atmosphere um, sucks moisture out of trees, uh, plants, and the like soil and just makes things more ready to it makes things more flammable. Yeah. And so I think one way I think of vapor pressure deficit is it's kind of just a proxy for the impact that heat has on the environment. Um, and so the vapor pressure deficit in arid environments is really driven by increases in temperature. So the temperature goes up and you get an exponential increase in vapor pressure deficit, which is essentially a fancy like scientist way of saying that heat dries out the landscape and it dries out the landscape a lot, especially in arid environments. And VPD is another thing that played a role in just priming the landscape for these 
historic explosive wildfires. Yeah, the vapor pressure deficit is once again off the charts. The charts just happen, they're just being remade constantly these days with the, with the warming climate. So the vapor pressure deficit, at least across the southern tier of, um, of the West this summer, the highest we've seen. In August, the vapor pressure deficit was the highest we've seen in August in California. And I believe looking at sort of the sort of the, the area where we saw a lot of those fires breaking out, extending from Northern California up to Oregon, the vapor pressure deficit for the previous 30 to 60 days before the fires broke out was, you know, either the worst or, you know, up there, silver metal, if you will, in terms of um, its extreme nature. So this is this is a more sort of consistent way in which we expect climate change to really impact fire activity. Okay, Colin. So maybe let's shift the conversation back um, a bit to your whole take on new normals. And you know, you were talking about not wanting to accept sort of the impact, the inevitability of the horrible impacts that these kinds of things are going to have on people and communities. And one of the issues that these fires really highlighted is smoke. So the most dramatic stories from these fires, I think, are coming from people like Joe, who are living in places where the communities were essentially burned over by the fires, and the fires moved really fast. And people had to evacuate in these dramatic, terrifying ways um, that, you know, we definitely want to avoid if we ever can. But the more common impact to people from these fires was just smoke. There was an insane amount of smoke generated by these fires, and it affected the air quality in some of our country's most major population centers. Um, in ways where, you know, like major cities were darkened for days. Um, and, you know, Colin, just like thinking about this smoke issue, I was just thinking about like, what, like, what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about the interesting thing about the smoke impacts this year and in, I think it was 2018, was just how far afield people were being impacted, you know, people in communities that are hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, in some cases are being impacted by the smoke from fire that's that's hundreds or thousands of miles away. And I think that that's the thing that's really eye-opening in, in 2020 is, you know, when, when the U.S. has some of the worst air quality in the world um, because of the smoke and it hits home that this isn't a this isn't California's problem. This isn't Washington's problem. It's not New Mexico's problem. This is a this is a national problem that needs national attention. Yeah, and I think also like I, I don't actually know what the sort of solution to the smoke problem is, but I guess the thing it drove home for me is just that, you know, it is something that we need to come up with collective answers to in one way or another. I read a New York Times piece about the smoke in Oregon. And one idea was, for example, was, you know, there might need to be days in the future where the governor effectively prohibits outside work because it's just not safe for people to go outside. Um, You know, John was talking with us about how there need to be sort of smoke days like there are snow days. And that's sort of an example of what a smoke day might look like. You know, snow days, the only thing they really prevent us from doing is traveling on the roads in large numbers, but it's not like fundamentally unsafe to go outside. And this is really sort of a different animal. Um, You know, another thing I thought about was like, it's kind of an infrastructure issue. Like we need to have our built environments Um, adapted in a way that they're capable of preserving people's air quality inside at healthy levels if they just literally are not allowed to go outside. And I don't know that, you know, most of our homes and buildings are equipped to do that right now. I mean, I think some of them are probably, but not all. Um, I know there's a group here in Santa Fe that has a program where they'll loan out HEPA filters for bad smoke days, 
Um, but I think that's pretty small. I don't know if you could do something like that at scale. I mean, I don't know. I guess the point is just like, you know, this is an example of a climate impact that we need to start grappling with and coming up for solution, coming up with solutions for. And it's an example that will have disproportionate impacts on the, on poor people. It will, this, we need to be banging the drum. We need to be banging the drum for environmental justice on smoke impacts now, like, or 10 years ago, but now like really coming out of this, you know, you can, you could imagine a situation that where the air quality, never mind, I'm not going to say that, but you know, you talk about the built environment and you talk about, you know, um, all of this infrastructure development, there needs to be a way to make sure that we do that in a just and equitable way. I mean, like think about how here in Santa Fe, we cool, you know, like everybody in town opens up their windows at night to let in, you know, the cool air at during the summertime. And if that air is full of smoke, like you're sort of stuck stifling in your, in your house. And if you're either trying to use a swamp cooler or, you know, you don't have access to refrigerated air, how, how can you, you know, improve the air, indoor air quality and, you know, keep your family, you know, cool and, um, and sane in the summer? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because this is just one example of how complex the problems are that climate change is presenting to us and how complex adaptation can be, um, which I think just, you know, again, just kind of like underlines the need for us to really just start getting our shit together on this stuff like as soon as possible. Because, you know, one thing you were bringing up about like smoke days in Santa Fe, like most people in Santa Fe don't have air conditioning. And like I have the situation that's exactly what you described, where in the summer we depend on opening all our windows at night to keep our house cool, not only at night, but during the day too. And our house is like really miserable when we have to keep the day, when we have to keep the windows closed um, for many days because of smoke. But then you think of like, okay, if everyone now in places that don't use air conditioning that much have to have air conditioning in their homes, but only for like very particular events. When you scale that, the energy demands of a whole bunch of air conditioning all of a sudden on an electric grid are like significant. So like there's just all these, you know, cascading effects of these kinds of things. Um, And we, the solutions to them need to be really well thought out and planned for. It's not the kind of thing you can like respond to necessarily in short order. No, you cannot respond to it in short order. You do need to think ahead. You do need to start planning for those types of electricity demands, those types of sort of interrelated and cascading consequences of broad scale high intensity, high severity wildfire. And we need to be planning and preparing for more prescribed and managed fire where the smoke impacts will hopefully be measured in the order of weeks at the most. And, you know, you can, but you still need to have a plan for how your community can can get out, you know, can get outside or, um, you know, deal with, deal with that level of smoke. And I think that the, the frustrating thing, the frustrating thing for me is that instead of talking about how we do that, how we ask the, like, instead of asking the questions that you just asked about, like the utility grid, which is just one problem that's related, we're arguing about whether or not climate change exists, or we're arguing about like, how can we act like how should we actively manage our our forests you know we're we're like yeah i mean i don't know like we we beat the shit out of this metaphor about the titanic and rearranging the deck chairs but we're like arguing about where the freaking violinist sits 
you know, like we're, we're not, we're not focused on the right thing. And that's the call to action that I hope comes out of 2020 is it's like focus on the right things, ask the right questions and start putting smart people in the room together to come up with solutions that we can try. Okay. So that's maybe a good seg to our last point of this episode. And you asked John this question at the end of our interview, which was like, what's the thing that scares you most about wildfire that people aren't talking about? And sort of another way you could spin that is like consistent with what we're talking about right now is just like, what are some of the lessons that we need to learn from the wildfires of 2020 to better prepare us for the future? You know, even if years like 2020 are not something we get every year, the likelihood is we're going to get years like this again, and we don't want to be caught flat-footed. So, hmm, what's the one thing that scares me that people aren't talking about when it comes to fire? I mean, so the the I think the there there is there is some there is something that at least I'm working on right now that people are people have talked about it, um, and we we've seen it sort of play out this year, in that this year we're we've been at an extended preparedness level five for quite some time. So the maximum level of sort of resources committed. Um, and it's probably being compounded this year by the fact that we've got some restrictions with COVID. But nonetheless, we're bringing in resources to fight fire from Australia and Canada, um, and we're still struggling to keep up. So one thing that we are seeing is more years like this. And it's not just individual spots on the landscape having extremely dry fuels, it's the whole thing. And so if you have only one spot, for example, this, if the Southwest has a big fire season and the Northwest doesn't and California doesn't and the Northern Rockies don't, you can sort of you know, reposition your resources to really sort of tackle the fire problem in the Southwest. And so we're seeing more of these years now where we're basically seeing the West all on fire at once. Not all on fire, but we're seeing widespread fire activity across broad geographic regions. And we know that we're unable to successfully suppress these fires um, so we can do our best, um, but we're running out of resources. And I don't think even with more resources, we'd be able to do put much of a dent in terms of reducing burned area. Um, so that is something that we're, we're, we're seeing suppression effectively fail during these big years. And so we do expect more of that in the future. And that to me is, a little bit problematic because when we run out of resources for suppression, um, the last thing we need are new ignitions. And we have to make then we have to make decisions on which fires to really go after. And that's 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 being done already. And some of those decisions can be beneficial, including letting some fires go in more remote areas, and that can introduce potentially um, you know improvements in overall uh, the fuel problems there. But the last thing we would want to do is make a decision on a fire based on the best information and that fire to then unfortunately impact communities downstream. Yeah. I mean, I think that a good example of this, you know, if we kind of like imagine ourselves in a world without a pandemic right now, um, the weather in New Mexico is actually really great this time of year to burn um, a lot of a lot of the either the piles that we've created through thinning efforts or just do some broadcast burning. But we don't have anybody here who can actually do the work because they're all off in like either California or Colorado. Um, like, or they're, or they're apprehensive about starting um, a prescribed fire. You know, the people who are here are apprehensive about starting a prescribed fire because they're so staff limited, you know, in the region that if, Oh, you get a natural you get another ignition somewhere else. Um, it could really put uh, it could stretch everybody really thin and put some some people at risk. Um, so I mean, I think that it's just like Kelly, the reality is we cannot do this with a seasonal firefighting crew anymore. We just can't have seasonal firefighters. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. They can't be. People who come in in April, you know, after ski bumming for the winter and and fight fires in the summer. Like we need full time, 365 day a year firefighters. Full stop. That's 
an easy solution to to a major challenge. And I know that that, you know, I'm not calling out anybody specifically who's ski bums and, and fights fire. I think that's a rad way to live. But I think that, you know, and I also apologize and understand that a lot of people like the furlough. But um, it just can't happen anymore. It it's It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one other thing just to touch on here is that um, some of the stories we heard at the beginning of the episode spoke to some of the mental health impacts on people of living through these kinds of fires. And those things apply to firefighters too. Um, and they're exacerbated when they are spread so thin and their workloads are so high. And also in these kind of fires, not only is that happening, but um, firefighters are frequently being put in really dangerous situations. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than it's a conversation that is going on more and more in the fire community. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, this year will probably be another example, um, that it's just something we need to deal with, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be looking for people, you know, there's going to be a lot of people in the next couple of years looking for jobs, and I don't see why we're not getting them trained up to to help fight and light some fire. And, you know, the other thing I'll say is we need to make sure that we're giving um, access to fire to all of our indigenous partners who want it because, A, of all, it's been way too long, and we've been talking about that for way too long and be of all what are we you know we're going to turn down a willing group of people who want to try to help you know put some fire some good fire back on the ground uh doesn't make any sense here here um okay well that's a wrap for us for this second season of hot and dry Thanks so much for listening. As we're recording this, I know there's another big heat wave in the forecast and California's traditional fire season hasn't even really begun. Um, so this is quite a year we're living through. I think we probably can't even quite wrap our minds around the impacts that it's had and that will that it will have. And yeah, I don't quite know what else to say about it. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah. Big, huge thanks to the Southwest Fire Science Consortium and the Joint Fire Science Program for their support for this season of Hot and Dry. Um, we really appreciated all of the intellectual and content support that, that those groups gave and the work that they do.